All right, so last week I, um, I said that Community 101, was, that was our last, our last installment of, of our series. So consider this bonus material. Yeah. <laughs> Community 101, uh, part four, we'll call it that. Community 101. We're going to go to the book of Acts. Um, I've been grateful for the opportunity to just look at these stories that maybe we've seen before and um, actually just seek to live them out in our own experience. I don't know how many of you remember the challenge that we gave out last week. And um, Last week, the, the idea was to devote ourselves to fellowship, to vo- devote ourselves to the breaking of bread. And one of the specific takeaways I encouraged us to do is that at least um, one time this week, to look for an opportunity to ask someone, how are you doing really? And... Um, or to even answer the question, how are you doing really, even if it's not even asked, right? <laughs> and um, I don't know about you, but when I took that opportunity this week, uh, there was something very uh, healing about that. There was something, you know, to be able to be transparent, to be able to be real, to, and to know that you're not going to be thrown stones at because of it, um, that, that is a huge blessing. And so I hope that we're experiencing community as we, as we uh, move forward together as a church family. Maybe you're experiencing more community in your household or in your workplace. Um, but I hope this is more than just a flavor of the month. You know, that community would be our, in our DNA. And this is really by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to dive into the book of Acts. If you've got your Bibles, let's go to the book of Acts. Instead of chapter 2, as we've been over the last few weeks, we're going to go to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. And uh, we're going to take a look at another scene where there's just this, this huge description of, of community that just seems beyond reality. You know, it just seems so surreal and so idyllic. But, um, but what's beautiful about this narrative is it goes from this general portrait to a very individualized portrait, okay? To kind of put flesh and bones on this picture of what community looks like from day to day. So before we study into it, let's, let's bow our heads for another word of prayer. Father in heaven, we're seeking you. We're asking that you would speak and that you would cause our ears and our hearts to be wide open. Lord, we know that there are, um, there are influences, there are experiences that may um, make our hearts like stony ground or, or thorny ground or even hard pat wayside ground. And today we just ask for a good and noble heart. We're asking for a heart that is receptive to the seed of the gospel, that the word would take deep root in us and bear fruit in our lives. And so please, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you please speak to us? Give us ears to listen. We pray in Jesus' saving and precious name. Let the family say, Amen. 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 All right. Acts chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 32. And really, you know, when we, when we study the book of Acts, I don't know, maybe your Bible says it like mine. Mine says it, the Acts of the Apostles. But truly, this is not just the Acts of... Yeah, this is the acts of the Holy Spirit. This isn't, isn't the acts of some uh, trained men who are doing great things because they had great charisma and awesome skill. Maybe they did because of their time with Jesus, but really, it's the acts of the Holy Spirit moving through godly men and godly women. The acts of the Holy Spirit we see throughout the story of, of the, the book of Acts is we see not just miraculous healings, not just miraculous conversions and, and evangelistic campaigns, so to speak, but we see miraculous community. All right, Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Notice this miraculous oneness and unity. Verse 32, when you're there, say amen. 
All right. Now the multitude of those who believed, okay, they, they basically stopped counting now, right? In Acts chapter 2, it was 3,000 were added to the number. And then in Acts chapter 3 and 4, it's, I think it was 5,000 that were added to the number. And now in verse 32, it's just, it's the multitude of those who believed. What's the description? Now the multitude of those who believed were of how many hearts and soul? What? They were of one heart and one soul. I mean, think about your own experience. Who can you say that you are one heart and one soul with? That's not very many, right? But this is a multitude of believers who their identity has been so swallowed up in Jesus that when they look to each other, they see Jesus. They're one heart and one soul because of the gospel. Now, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. This, this picture of unity, it's kind of bookended by a couple of different pictures. Um, I guess in verse 31, you see that they're ending a prayer season. They're, they're praying for boldness to continue to move forward in the mission that God has given them to witness to Him. It says that in verse 31, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the Word of God with boldness. So on one side of of this picture of community, you see this united prayer, united mission, united proclamation of the Gospel. And then look at the other bookend of this picture of unity. Later on in verse 32, you know, you've got the one heart and one soul. And notice what their mode of operation was. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. So that we're, this picture of oneness is, is bookended by a united prayer, united mission, and also sacrificial giving. And we talked a little bit about this last week. We talked about how giving is really um, uh, an integral ingredient, so to speak, in what community really looks like. And I, I don't know if... I don't know if we really can. Maybe this is something for another series, and maybe I can consult with, with George about how to, how to present this uh, in, in a way that's really meaningful. But something that struck me, and this isn't the main point of what we're trying to get to. We're, we're, we're almost there. Don't worry. <laughs> but um, something that struck me as I was looking at this picture of unity is the fact that giving is always a part of unity. I don't know if you, I mean, we saw that in chapter 2, that they had all things in common so that nobody had need. Giving, sacrificial giving is always a part of unity. And sometimes we think of our giving, our contributions in tithe or offering or whatever charitable giving, uh, we, we sometimes think of that in terms of, of faithfulness, you know, in terms of things that should be done, um, Maybe you think of it in terms of not robbing God. Or maybe you think of it in terms of not closing the windows of heaven. You want those windows to be open, that kind of thing. That's from Malachi chapter 3. But what if giving is actually a way to strengthen community? Maybe, Maybe it's not... Maybe giving and, and, and our offering and our tithing and things like that, it's not just about being faithful or robbing God. It's about oneness that reveals that Jesus has risen from the dead. I mean, notice what the very next verse says in verse 33. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. In other words, it was because of their ability to share. It was because of their ability to give sacrificially that they could give witness to the Lord. And so maybe our unfaithfulness in giving is not only a detriment to ourselves, but it's also a detriment to the body of Christ and our capacity to bear witness 
with great power. I mean, you think about the way, I love the way that, uh, you know, God has blessed the Adventist church with a system of systematic benevolence, you know, where giving to the storehouse, so to speak, actually blesses not just that local congregation, but it blesses the world. Really, giving is a part of community. I mean, you see that built in, and I love that. I love that. And so we have this picture of community, sacrificial giving, and as a result, verse 33, great power, with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And all of a sudden, the narrative goes from this sweeping picture of unity to an individual who really gives and contributes to community. Notice now in verse 36. In verse 36, the Bible says, And Joseph who is also named, what else? Barnabas. Barnabas. Okay, so he, he was surnamed or nicknamed Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of, what does your Bible say? Son of encouragement. Now, I don't know what your nicknames were, but this is a good nickname to have, right? Um, yeah, I, we don't have to go into that. Anyways, <laughs> This is a good nickname to have. Some nicknames, you know, they're, they're descriptive or even prescriptive, but mostly they're descriptive of some negative traits or laughable traits or whatever the case might be. But here's Barnabas. He is a son of encouragement. Son of encouragement. You think of who, who else has son of in their names or nicknames. James and John, they were the sons of Thunder. That wasn't talking about some biological genetic lineage from thunder. It was talking about being a representation of or the embodiment of thunder, right? When we say Jesus was the Son of God, that's not a biological genetic line. It's talking about being the representative one who has the, um, the fullness of the Godhead bodily. We, we follow that, yeah? But he, he's also the Son of Man. He's the representative of humanity to God. And so here Barnabas is the embodiment of what? of encouragement, of encouragement. The word there is parakaleo. Here's your little Greek lesson for the month, okay? Parakaleo. Para, I mean, we see para in in a lot of English words like parallel, paralegal, parachute, things like that. Para is is a prefix that means alongside or beside. Kaleo means to call. So someone who parakaleos is someone who calls you to their side. In times of comfort, remember when Jesus was talking about, hey, I'm leaving, but there is another one, the comforter, the paraclete. He is the one that's going to be calling you to his side. Here, Barnabas is, is literally, he's the embodiment of what it means to call people to your side. So, what do we read about, about Barnabas? Joseph, who is also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay, so here we know that, that Barnabas is, is obviously someone who sacrificially gives. He's a generous individual. In fact, he gives all to the cause of the church. 
And it's in this example that we just see the first of many. And we're going to look at all the instances where, where Barnabas appears in the book of Acts. Okay, And we're going to look and see how his example, not just giving financially or monetarily, was an encouragement. It called people to his side. And so, I, I love this. We're going to go, this is probably one of my favorite studies in the book of Acts. A lot of different themes are interwoven throughout the book. But uh, sometimes it's just really neat to t- pick a character and just track them. You know, Put a little GPS on them and follow them wherever they go. And so here we are. You guys ready? Acts chapter 9. Let's go. We're going to go to three different instances where Barnabas shows up as the son of encouragement. All right, Acts chapter 9. Maybe you recognize some of the stories here. This is Saul's conversion near the beginning. And we're going to start in verse 26. When you're there, say, I am there. All right, all right. Acts chapter 9, verse 26. The Bible says, When Saul had come to Jerusalem. All right, you guys remember who Saul was, right? The last time he left Jerusalem, he was sent to go take Christian believers and put them in prison. Okay? So here Saul is coming back, but he's a different kind of Saul. Right? He's been knocked off his horse, literally. And he has been converted. He's, he's really calling out to the name of the Lord. And he wants to preach in the name of the Lord. And he comes back to Jerusalem. When Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to do what? He tried to join the disciples. Some of them you know by name. Peter, James, John. But then there's this multitude that just keeps adding every single day, right? Anyways, so here he is. He tries to join the disciples, but they were all, what are the words there? They were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. This is a picture of a church that is afraid and unbelieving. Why? Well, because the Lord was adding to the church daily, we know that the church was growing. And as long as the church was growing with people that they liked, it was all good. But then there was someone that they weren't quite sure they should like. I don't know if that ever happens, but you you find somebody in your sphere of influence and you're not quite sure how to interact with them. You're not quite sure where they're coming from or what their intentions are, and so you keep them at arm's length. And the church at this time was really... Uh, doing that for Saul. Now, imagine if the Bible finished, or if this story finished with verse 26. You realize that we'd be in a really bad spot, right? We wouldn't have the rest of the New Testament. We wouldn't have the gospel preached to the Gentiles. That's us. And so here, I'm so thankful that verse 27 starts, but Barnabas. There's a total switch in the narrative. But Barnabas, contrast. In other words, he's not afraid. And he's not unbelieving. He's full of faith here. But Barnabas. And what did Barnabas do? But Barnabas took him. Barnabas took him. Have you ever taken somebody before? Jesus has. In Matthew chapter 14, there's a story where Jesus is walking on the water. Right? It's a stormy sea. Peter and the boys in the boat, they think he's a ghost. He says, oh man, if that's you, then call me out. Peter comes out on the water, and he looks around, gets a little distracted, starts falling. He calls out, Lord, save me, and Jesus took him. Same word. Jesus caught him. In a very real sense, Barnabas rescued Saul here. 
But Barnabas took him. I don't know if, if the, if, I mean, just kind of imagining the movement of the story, Saul is trying to come to the church, but they're afraid and unbelieving. Uh, the, he, he potentially could have been moving the other direction. You, you see the, the, the sentiment of that story there? And so Jesus, I'm sorry, Barnabas took him just as much as Jesus took and caught Peter. So the, the story says Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. How did Barnabas know all this about Saul? He ha- My guess is that he had some koinonia with him for a little bit. My guess is that he broke some bread. My guess is that he listened, even though maybe his heart was pumping. Should I listen? Should I invite him in? You know? Barnabas took him, brought him, not just to the apostles, he brought him to himself first. He brought him to the apostles. He advocated for him. And in verse 28, notice the results of all this. In verse 28, so he was with them at Jerusalem. Now he's amongst them. He's with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. This is a biblical expression of of how sheep come in and go out, how leaders know how to come in and go out. It's because they know their way around. They're comfortable with their surroundings. And so Saul is someone who is accepted inside, outside. It's beautiful. And what it is, is it's a picture of freedom. He's got free release. He's not being held back. And it's also a picture of power. Notice in verse 29, And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, that's the Greek-speaking Jews, but they attempted to kill him. And when the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. He was becoming so effective in preaching the gospel that the opponents of the gospel were ready to, to take him out. It's a picture here where because of Barnabas' investment, because he was a parakaleo kind of person, he called Saul to his side, the, the gospel is being preached with power, and you and I stand here today. Praise the Lord, right? <laughs> Praise the Lord. All right, picture number two. Picture number two is in chapter 11. So just go a couple of more pages maybe in your Bible. Chapter 11. Chapter 11 starting in verse 19. Alright. Picture number two. Now, those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but who? But the Jews only. Now, you understand here that this is not part of God's grand plan. Right? In Acts chapter 1, the table of contents, so to speak, of this whole book, it says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. Don't forget about those guys. And to the uttermost parts of the world. And so here, the mission was being hampered. The mission was kind of being half-baked, so to speak. But then in verse 20, it says, Some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, that's the the Greek-speaking Jews, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Praise God. Amen? The gospel is being proclaimed beyond boundaries that were previously held to. And so, at this point, there's, there's some concern. 
In verse 22, it says, Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And you kind of get this, this undertone of uncertainty. Again, they're, uh, they're afraid and unbelieving, so to speak. Hey, these people are different from us. Should we, I mean, I know that the Lord is adding to our number daily, such as should be saved, but could He be adding these too? And so who do they send to check out the situation? Barnabas, yeah, verse 22. And they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. The son of encouragement. Let's go send him. Let's see if he can make sense of this whole thing. None of us is really uh, as courageous as he is to invest in people. So let's, let's send Barnabas, the son of encouragement, the one who's unafraid, the one who's believing. And in verse 23, he does live up to his name. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart, that means with resoluteness, with determination, they should continue with the Lord. In other words, here's Barnabas. In chapter 9, he's taking hold, a rescuing hold on Saul. And in chapter 11, he's taking hold, a rescuing hold on a community of believers that could themselves have been isolated and neglected just like it was a potential threat for Saul. And Barnabas is doing it. He's investing himself to take a rescuing hold of these people. And in verse 24, I love this description. My Bible starts with the word for. In other words, this is the explanation of why he could invest in people, why he could call them to his side, why he could be an encouragement to them. For he was a good man, full of what? The Holy Spirit and of faith. I tell you, it takes the Holy Spirit to love people like that. It takes the Holy Spirit to be courageous like that when others are not so courageous. It takes the Holy Spirit, it takes faith to see people beyond what you've prior or previously seen them as. And there's more to the story. Because in verse 25, the Bible says, Then Barnabas departed. Well, where's he going? He departed for Tarsus to do what? To seek Saul. He's seeking Saul. Why? And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. In other words, Barnabas is looking at what God is doing here and and he wants to invest more deeply. He wants to spend some significant time there. Hey, let me get Saul. Let me get Saul. Why? So that I could, you know, maybe he, maybe he can have a hand at taking hold of someone, so to speak. So, the results of all this, at the end of verse 26, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. In other words, here was a community of believers that really reflected Jesus. Here was a community of believers that, in word and in deed, in the way that they lived, they, really, they were known as Christ-like. And that's where they were first called Christians. All because, again, all because a son of encouragement was willing to invest, was willing to take a rescuing hold on people. Alright, so that was scene two. We've got chapter 9, chapter 11. Let's go to chapter 13. Chapter 13. Actually, the end of chapter 12, we'll kind of see where this, this is all kind of tying together. Chapter 13, and it bleeds into 15. Alright, this is scene three of our son of encouragement. Hopefully you're kind of picking up so far just like, hey, what, what it takes to be a son of encouragement. 
Um, the kind of, of habits we've looked at over the last few weeks, but how about the kind of interactions, the, the kind of people we can be in, in generating community? All right, at the end of chapter 12, verse 25, here's Barnabas again. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname was what? Mark. All right, so here, Barnabas and Saul, they're, uh, they're, wanting to, they're moving forward in mission. They're continuing to spread the gospel. They are, they're now the Batman and Robin, so to speak, uh, of the gospel work. They're, they're moving it forward, and they want to involve another in their partnership. Barnabas, again, he's giving Paul the chance to try his hand at mentorship and discipleship. You look at other places in Scripture, you find that John Mark was actually a cousin or a nephew of Barnabas. So here Barnabas, he, he already knows who John Mark is. He already knows that he's got an interest in serving God. And it's really interesting, actually, if you do a little biography study of John Mark. Where does he show up in the Bible? Um, and that, maybe that's another a sermon for, for itself. But here, Barnabas is giving Paul the chance to try, his men, to try his hand, so to speak, at mentorship and discipleship. And in verse 13, it says, Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So this is that church, Antioch, you know, this is that church where they were first called Christians. This is that church that, that you know, they were on the verge of being neglected. And they're, they're hearing the Holy Spirit saying, you know what, we need to send people out. We need to send out missionaries. And so in verse 4, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down. That's Barnabas and Saul, and now they're taking John Mark with them. They went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Now the story continues that some of the action that, uh, that these missionaries saw on the island of Cyprus was such that it was, kind of, it was intense spiritual warfare. And by the time they leave Cyprus and they go to Paphos, John Mark is wondering how far in, into this thing he really wants to get. And where is it? I think it's down in verse 13. It says, Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Their missionary journey wasn't over, but John Mark was saying, Time out. I miss my mommy's cooking. I need to go home. <laughs> now, I, I don't know. Maybe it was something about that, that uh, experience there with Elemis, the sorcerer there in Cyprus, that he's just like, I'm not sure I'm really ready for this. And again, if you look at the story of John Mark throughout Scripture, you get this idea that John Mark is a young guy who has a desire. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, so to speak. And he's into, I don't know, the, the two different scenes that... Well, there's a story in, John, in Mark 14 where someone is trying to follow Jesus um, as he's on his way to trial and the cross. And there's a young man that flees away. I don't know if you remember that. Just this little, bi- like, little blip in Mark chapter 14. And it's almost as if Mark is saying, yeah, I was there, but I wasn't there for long. <laughs> and so Mark has this tendency to see, to want to go, but then to backtrack. And so here, John Mark, he leaves at the time when... Really, their, their job wasn't done. 
Barnabas and Paul, or Saul, now called Paul, here in the middle of chapter 13, it, it kind of switches over. Barnabas and Saul, they complete their missionary journey. And by the time you get to chapter 15, they're already back in Jerusalem. They're reporting how God is working amongst the Gentiles and things like that. And they're feeling the need to go back, to circle back, to you know, just check on the believers, the, the churches that they've raised up. And at the end of chapter 15, go ahead and turn there. The end of chapter 15, verse 36, Then after some days... Paul said to Barnabas, Hey, let, let's now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. And the Bible says in verse 37, Now Barnabas was determined. Does anybody else's Bible say it differently? There, Mine says Barnabas was determined. You got it there too? He was resolved. He was, it was a premeditated intention of his. Barnabas was determined to take with them who? His nephew, his cousin. John called Mark. But Paul, right? There's that contrast again. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them. He doesn't even name him by a name here. The one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention, verse 39, then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. Probably one of the the sad, the lowlights of the book of Acts. Such powerhouses for gospel ministry, right? They couldn't see eye to eye on this very thing. While Paul Paul was, uh, you might say that Paul now, he is being afraid and unbelieving in the potential of John Mark. But Barnabas was determined, he was resolved to be unafraid and believing when it came to this young man who had genuine desires but just didn't have the the follow-through. The contention became so sharp, keep that word just kind of locked in a shelf in your mind, became so sharp that they parted from one another and so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to where? Sailed to Cyprus. That's actually the the island where John Mark got freaked out. Okay? And if you were paying attention to the description about Barnabas, this is where Barnabas is from. <clears throat> Sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose, chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. Can you imagine what the brethren were thinking about all this? Hey, we, just a few months ago, we, we sent both of you out. The Holy Spirit was telling us to send both. Uh, okay, guys, let, let's multiply here. Let's multiply. <laughs> This was not the intention, but they commended these individuals to the grace of God, and God was still able to bless. Now, I want to just kind of pause right here. So far, as you've seen these three pictures of Barnabas, one, he's taking a rescuing hold on Saul. He's taking a rescuing hold on the believers in Antioch. And now he's taking a rescuing hold on on John Mark. Are we seeing what makes Barnabas Barnabas? Are you seeing what makes Barnabas a son of encouragement? Um, The two things that really stand out to me, I would say, are, are Barnabas had the capacity to be fully aware of someone's past and yet be fully willing to love them still. I'll say that again. He had the capacity to be fully aware of someone's past their track record, their shortcomings, and yet still be fully willing to love them still. 
that's beautiful to me. And I think that kind of willingness, that kind of courage, that kind of love is a stimulus for real community. Um, there's, a, there's a book called The Adventist Home. It's a compilation of, of statements of Ellen White just regarding family relationships, spouse relationships. And, and this is something that I remember reading when I was just, when it was just early in our marriage. And it says this, the heart of his wife, the husband's wife, should be the grave for the faults of the husband. Do you, do you see the word picture there? Uh, a grave is used to bury something, to put it to death, to put it away, lay it to rest. The heart of his wife should be the grave for the faults of the husband, and the heart of the husband the grave for his wife's faults. In other words, there shouldn't be a resurrection of those things. When you recognize each other's past, when you recognize each other's shortcomings, you don't just keep bringing those up. This is the kind of love that makes for oneness in a marriage relationship. And I would say that Barnabas was demonstrating this kind of love, a graveyard for each other's faults, that created a oneness in community. Uh, That's awesome! That kind of love is supernatural, by the way. That kind of love does not come naturally to us. And so Barnabas had this capacity to love like that, to see each other's faults, to be fully aware of them, but then to put them to the grave. And say, I'm going to love you still. The other thing I think about Barnabas is that his willingness to love was tied directly to his capacity to be fully aware of people's past and still see their potential. In other words, he, he had an eye of faith when it came to seeing individuals. Barnabas, he, he saw Saul trying to come and be with the disciples. And he didn't see a persecutor. He saw with the eye of faith a potential missionary for the gospel. He saw this church in Antioch that was kind of creating a stir, at least in the, the hearsay going around in, in Jerusalem. I said, you know, I'll go, I'll listen, I'll see that the grace of God is being there, uh, being, um, just moving there. And so Barnabas had this capacity to see, yes, he saw people not for their past, but for their potential. <clears throat> he did that with Paul, he did that with the Antioch Christians, he did that with John Mark. And I think this has a, a huge impact, both on, on creating community, but also on the effectiveness of community. You know, we were talking about how the Lord was able to add to their number daily, such as should be saved. I think as people in this multitude of believers started to believe that, hey, I remember what Peter did, but hey, I'm not going to look at his past. I'm going to see his potential. That, that was an empowering dynamic in that upper room. And it allowed for the mission, for the gospel to be carried forth. You know, in, in the book Desire of Ages, she talks about this idea of, of there's no limit. There's no limit to the usefulness of one who by putting self aside makes room for the working of the Holy Spirit upon his heart and lives a life wholly consecrated to God. Praise the Lord. You know, no matter what your past has been, there's no limit to the usefulness, to your usefulness, to my usefulness, when we've put self aside, when we've laid that to the, to the dust, and we live a life wholly consecrated to God. But notice how she kind of takes this turn, and uh, I, w- I want to see if you catch it. If men in humble life were encouraged to do all the good they could do, if restraining hands were not laid upon them to repress their zeal, The next part, there would be a hundred workers for Christ, where now there is one. 
And it makes me wonder, like, what was going on in the church at that time that would make her pen this part in Desire of Ages? Were there experiences where people were willing to do a work, but maybe because of their track record, or maybe because of their tendencies uh, to do this or to do that, you're like, ah, let's not trust them with ministry. Let's discourage them for a bit. Let's, let's lay restraining hands on them. Or maybe it wasn't actively opposing them, it just wasn't actively empowering them. And so Barnabas is someone who knows, no, wait, wait. If we encourage them to do all the good that they can do, no matter how far gone they've been, man, the Lord can, there's no limit to their usefulness. There would be a hundred workers where there now is only one. Oh, they're too young. Oh, they, they, they look different. They smell different. They sound different. Yeah, whatever the case. There may be a precious soul that by putting self aside, laying that to the dust, man, God can use them like he used Saul, a persecutor, to be a mighty preacher. He made that murderer a missionary. What in the world? Who are we to stop people from doing all the good they can do? Oh, this is Barnabas. Man, to be like Barnabas. <laughs> and sometimes, I mean, I guess the, the reality of Acts chapter 15, the sharp contention... The reality is that sometimes our persevering love and our persistent belief that that people can do what maybe others don't think they can do, sometimes that love for and belief in people is too risky for others around us. Maybe the brethren at times will, will not approve that at the board level or whatever the case might be. But I love the fact that this while this is the last time we see Barnabas in the book of Acts, this is not the last time we see John Mark. And, and just turn with me quickly now. Um, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4. If you're familiar with the letter to second, of 2 Timothy, this is kind of uh, Paul's farewell, so to speak. He's kind of at the end of his time. He's in prison. He knows his time is up. That's why he's kind of giving these famous last words in chapter 4. In verse 6, he's saying, I'm already poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. I've fought the good fight. You know, all these kinds of things. Second Timothy chapter 4. I want us to go to verse 9. When you're there, say, I found it. All right. Second Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 9. It says, be diligent to come to me quickly. So here's Paul. He's writing from prison. He wants Timothy to come visit him. Apparently, Paul has figured out along the way that there are younger guys that he should invest in. Timothy was one of them. Yeah. Somewhere along the line, Paul figured out, hey, Barnabas had a good idea. Okay, so Timothy was one of those guys. Be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica, Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. So here's Paul. He's like, hey, all these guys have departed me. Man, I had this early on in my ministry with a young guy named John Mark. And then notice what it says in verse 11. Get Mark and bring him with you. Why? For he is useful to me for ministry. What? <laughs> Paul has this turnaround. 
where John Mark, he realizes, okay, he was someone I didn't want to take a rescuing hold on. He was someone who departed from me, just like these guys that I'm listing right now. Crescens, you know, um, who else was it? Uh, Demas, you know, but bring Mark. Bring Mark, because he's really useful to me in ministry. John Mark obviously becomes the first gospel writer. I know he's not the first in the New Testament as, as we see it, but chronologically speaking, John Mark was the one who wrote the first gospel story, the story of Jesus' life. Sometimes our risky love doesn't always result in a happy ending. But Jesus would always say it's worth the effort. You know, maybe, maybe you're, you're rescuing hold like Barnabas for John Mark. Yeah, that was a happy ending. John Mark really did blossom. He really did grow. He really was used by the Lord. Sometimes our rescuing hold, let's be honest, sometimes we take a risk on people and it falls flat. Maybe you know of individuals in your life that you have invested deeply and you've poured yourself into them. You've cried over them. You've, you've worn out your knees because of, because of them. You've emptied your wallets because of them. And it seems as though that's all fruitless, but I tell you what, the risk is worth it. The risk is always going to be worth it. In Hebrews chapter 10, this will be our last our last passage. I know this isn't another, this isn't an appearance of Barnabas, but I think there's something here that, that I think Paul is referencing very intentionally. Hebrews chapter 10. And we're going to go to verse 24. Hebrews 10, verse 24. When you're there, say Amen. All right. Hebrews 10, verse 24. He's kind of getting in this, into this appeal mode. And he says, Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. Now, I know we don't see Barnabas here, but, but what's very interesting to me is that when Paul says, let us consider one another, he's talking about, let's be community. Let's pay attention to one another. Don't, don't just neglect each other. I was almost at that point where someone was neglecting me. Paul is saying, we've got to consider one another. For what purpose? In order to... My Bible says stir up. What does your Bible say? Encourage? Ha, nice. This is reminiscent of Barnabas. What's really interesting is that... That word for stir up can sometimes be translated as provoke or sharply provoke. The only other time that word is used in the New Testament is in Acts chapter 15, verse 39, when there was a sharp contention between Paul and Barnabas. In other words, I think what Paul is saying is, hey, let's be a community of Barnabas. <laughs> right? Let's be a community of people who will challenge each other, even if it means sharply provoking each other toward love and good works. There are going to be times where where we're not quite sure how to take a rescuing hold of people, but God wants us to be like Barnabas. I think that's what Paul is saying. Let's consider one another just like Barnabas considered me, just like Barnabas considered the church in Antioch, just like Barnabas considered his cousin that I just wanted to cast off. 
Let's consider one another. Be a community of Barnabas. To be sons and daughters of encouragement. I mean, wouldn't that be awesome if we knew that, hey, wait, you are a son of encouragement to me. You are a daughter of encouragement. Or if you knew that you could be a son or daughter of encouragement to someone else. A community of Barnabas. What do you think? Is that a vision that we can cast for each other? To be a community of Barnabas? So what does it take? One, it takes being willing to stir each other up. What? Yeah. Being willing to provoke each other. There are going to be times where we need to challenge each other to take a rescuing hold on others in our spheres. To tell each other, hey, don't give up on him. Don't give up on her. You know, keep investing, keep pouring, keep standing on their shores, so to speak. Step out to reach out. We have to challenge each other because our natural tendency is, let's just keep distance. (laughs) Let's just play things safe. Let's do what's comfortable. But I think, according to this, consider one another in order to stir up. We've got to be willing to stir it up. To keep stirring our hearts to be graveyards for each other's faults. To keep stirring our vision and perspective each other, of each other to see past our, our shortcomings and to actually see our potential. All right, so that's one way to be a community of Barnabas. The other way, uh, verse 25 says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. This is another aspect of being Barnabas-like, right? Not forsaking. So don't forsake the assemblies. Don't forsake the opportunities to gather. Don't forsake the opportunities to be close. I mean, really, to stir each other up and to provoke each other, to really consider each other, it requires being close to each other. It requires proximity. It requires presence. Being around each other in order to consider each other. To be present. So, how do we be Barnabas? Stir each other up. Be present. Don't, don't forsake the assembly. And then, uh, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and there's that parakaleo word again, exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So the other way that we can be like Barnabas is be willing to call people to our side. Be willing to, to take others under our wing, to comfort, to instruct, to console, to encourage Man, if we grow the habit of doing this within our own community here, I think God will recognize that this is a safe family for others that He can bring to the number, so to speak. I mean, that's, that's really what we're all about, right? The church is supposed to be a disciple-making assembly. It's supposed to be a disciple-making community. It's not just a place to gather or a program to attend. It's a community of disciple-makers. And if we don't know how to disciple each other, if we don't know how to take each other under wing, how can we have the capacity to take others under our wing? Right. And as this uh, passage ends, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching, this ought to be our, our mode of operation even more so in preparation for Jesus' soon return. So, simple question. Will you be a son? Will you be a daughter of encouragement? Will you be a Barnabas? Can we be a community of Barnabas? <laughs> I wonder today if there's an individual in your sphere of influence that you recognize as someone that, that really needs a rescuing hold. Someone that is on the verge of being neglected or isolated. Someone who's on the verge of, like Peter, being sunk or, or just kind of swallowed up in the waves of life or their own struggles. Is there an individual in your life that God is urging you to call, parakaleo, call to your side? 
Maybe starting within your own community of faith, just looking on the other side of the room here. Or maybe on the other side of your, your living room. Is there someone maybe outside of your present circles of contact? Is there someone that God wants you to take hold of today? If there is, then go, go take that. Go take that soul, that precious, precious soul. Even if others think that's, that's a waste of energy or a waste of time, even if others might sharply contend with you to do otherwise. If God is calling you to take a rescuing hold on a precious soul, man, there's no limit to the usefulness of that one. There's no limit. No limit. I want to encourage us today, if there is that individual, or maybe, maybe you need to pray that God would show you who that Saul is, who that John Mark is in your life. Maybe we need to take time this week just to pray that God would lead us to someone. And it's not that we need to do this for multitudes. No, Barnabas did it one person at a time. Sure, he did it for that community of believers in Antioch, but really, I mean, that was a, a singular investment there. He was invested. He had a narrow focus. Let's pray for God to lead us to one. One to give to, one to, to, to live for, one to pray for. Um, uh, or later on in the month of March, we're actually going to be kind of extending this, uh, this principle of, of taking rescuing hold on people. And uh, I, I won't spill the beans yet, but the new series is coming out and later in March. And I, just, I really want us to start catching this picture of, hey, God wants to use me to grab hold of one. To grab hold of one. So, can we be as, as resolute like Barnabas? Remember in chapter 15 of Acts, he determined in his heart that he would take John Mark. Let's determine in our heart. Let's resolve to do so. Yeah. How many of you are willing to say, yeah, God, I want to be a Barnabas. I want to be a son and daughter of encouragement. Yeah? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, first off, I just want to thank you for taking a rescuing hold on us. God, you saw the whole picture. You saw our past and our future. And still you came. You walked this earth. You called us to your side. You came to our side. And it's from that bleeding side that we can know that we are rescued. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the kind of love for others. Love for those in our circles of influence, whether in the home or outside the home, in the church or outside the church. God, that you would give us Barnabas-like love and Barnabas-like courage to grab hold of someone. Lord, lead us to an individual that we can invest in. Lead us to someone that we can see not just their past, but their potential. Lead us to someone that we can love and let our heart be the graveyard of their faults. God, we want to love like you do. Thank you so much for this exploration into what community is, and I pray that we would begin to experience this, not just as something to hear about and talk about, but as something to live, that this would be our culture, that this would be our, our DNA. And I thank you, God, that this is what you are to us. In Jesus' saving name, let the family say, Amen.